You could say that a lot has happened over the last eight years. We saw wild fluctuations in the nation's politics, the Cardinals and the Royals winning the World Series, and the advent of dubstep music. But this was also the time period when Clint Zweifel served as Missouri's treasurer. And on his last day in office, he has graciously decided to come on the Politically Speaking podcast to talk about his time in public service. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum. And I'm Joe Manis. That's Eric Reitens, Navy <laughs> SEALs running for governor, and I'm really, really glad to be on with you, Jason and Joe. I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. And welcome to the Politically Speaking podcast, our first of 2017. I am Jason Rosenbaum of St. Louis Public Radio. Alongside me is... Colleague Joe Manis. And And of course, you have new music for the new year. And I just want to give a special shout out to Greg Montanew for putting that together. And also another shout out to uh, Jonathan Martin, Nick Wilson, Michael Barcroft, and Chris Pond, they were part of the space rock band Audio Ammunition, a defunct Columbia band, and they supplied the music for that. And I'm sure that our guest and I'm sure that our guest in Jefferson City is is greatly amused by all this talk of the new theme music we have today. In his last full day in office before he full weekday full weekday in office before he enters the new phase of his life and career, our guest today. Clint Swifel, Missouri State Treasurer, and I'm glad to be part of this new eclectic theme music, Jason. <laughs> I, I knew that you were, would appreciate this because I know that you have excellent taste in music and uh, have excellent taste in everything, so to speak. <laughs> well, as my way, that might be going a little far. But I am a fan of Neil Young, and so are you. So that's that. that I, I know that we're at least on the same page there. <laughs> yeah. So um, it is Friday. This, this is going to be the last full weekday, as we mentioned before, uh, uh, as, as state treasurer. And eight we, years? Eight years. Um, you're, you're part of a, a weird subset of statewide officials that are actually term limited. Um, did you ever figure out why the state treasurer's office is term limited, but none of the other ones besides governor aren't? Well, based on a reading of history, it, it looks that lawmakers were thinking about ways to ensure that those that are have either enormous amount of power in the state or are touching money and resources aren't in place for a long period of time. And and I think that was probably the thinking along those lines. Are, are you happy that they decided to do that? Or are you kind of sad that you're limited from continuing? No, to I, I actually think term limits for statewide officials is a reasonable idea. I think it makes sense for statewide officials. Um, certainly, I wouldn't serve in any one office for more than eight years. I think that's enough time to do a great job to establish leadership in key areas and then give someone else a chance to do it. Are there any particular achievement? I mean, you, you've you had a pretty non-eventful eight years where you've been able to promote programs, uh, try to do some good in the state, and there haven't been any major controversies in your office. So I'm interested in if there are key things that you are particularly proud of. Well, I think the big picture, especially upon taking office in 2009, but certainly even up till now, is being a steady hand uh, with our fiscal issues during challenging times. 
making sure that we have stability, that we mitigate risk. There are many states, Joe, that were going through some big, big challenges that were partially self-inflicted that sort of uh, came apart because of the financial crisis. Missouri avoided those challenges from an investment perspective. We mitigated risk. We're constantly thinking about ways to analyze risk in new ways and mitigate it so that we can protect taxpayers. So big picture, I think that's central and key. Uh, Secondly, I would say along with that is, uh, you know, leadership capability as defined by someone who can help guide, someone who can work with both parties. I'm I'm proud of what we've been able to get done and what I've been able to achieve with with our team uh, during that time period. Well, that was going to be my next question, because you are a Democratic statewide official in a legislature that became more and more and more Republican as time went on. But one thing that I've noticed is when the treasurer's office wanted to get something passed in the legislature, you often found a lot of Republicans that wanted to help you out. And I think you got pretty much all of your agenda passed, which on the surface would would seem like an amazing accomplishment given the the seeming part, partisan obstacle. But on the other hand, when we're talking about the treasurer's office, there's a lot of aspects of of this particular office that really aren't partisan. They're more of just things that need to be done for the state to function properly. So I wanted you to just go through kind of some of the legislative changes that you promoted that got passed and, and kind of give your insight on why you were able to find such bipartisan agreement to many of the ideas. Sure. Well, you know, I think as you were talking about that, I think, first of all, I think many legislators understand the important operational impact that this office has and that there really isn't a lot of room for error. So uh, when we talk, we have very serious conversations and we preface it with our focus and what we're trying to achieve. But I think the big picture, Jason, Joe, in in this business is that relationships do matter. It was Tim Fluke, a Republican from Liberty. It was David Pierce. Uh, from Johnson County. They they were the colleagues that I worked closest with on our first legislative initiative, and that actually transformed how we make investments in Missouri banks. It created a market uh, rate of deposit. We were the only state in the nation other than Alabama at that point that when we put money in a Missouri bank, we did not get a market rate of return. And it also transformed our small business loan program into something that was actually vibrant in places like St. Louis, where at the time we had about $2 million lent out. Now we have more than 60. Uh, places like Kansas City and Springfield and Cape Girardeau. So it's really expanded uh, that loan program. That was the first legislative initiative that we took soon after taking office. That was one I really, I think, set the stage for a lot of other work we were able to get done after that. Now, one of the things that the Treasurer's Office is known for, aside from the investment part, is uh, some of the savings programs for college students. I know there have been over the years before you came, there were into office, there were some slight changes made in the program. I'm interested if you could talk a little bit about that and um, how successful it was or not. Sure. Well, we're, a, we're one of the top rated college savings plans in the nation is Missouri Most now. We have more than $2 billion in assets. Uh, we are recently, Morningstar, which is a, a rating agency, gave us a silver rating. Uh, both because of our performance and cost. So it's a great plan. It's one that uh, Janice and I use for our own daughters, one that we believe in wholeheartedly. But there's been some interesting opportunities that have come about because of being present in the moment uh, in important times. And one of those is the development of these matching accounts. So we're partnering now with United Way, uh, with KIPP Schools, with Beyond Housing. These are all organizations that are based in St. Louis Scholarship Foundation. 
where they have developed matching grant programs because there's this idea that Washington University has really led in this research that says the value of one of these accounts is bigger than just simply the material dollar value of it and that by having these accounts it begins to change expectations for parents and for kids at a young age and begins to really open up this door to what can they achieve as, as they go through school. And we now are serving about 1,500 children in St. Louis that are often in high-risk or vulnerable situations through these public-private partnerships, if you will, that are created. We had our own matching grant program, Joe, when I started. Uh, we, we created that program. I think the beauty of, of, of learning uh, and, and be willing to listen to others is that we think the best model going forward is, is to have these localized efforts uh, where we have local buy-in and we have organizations that are raising money for these parents and teachers are part of this. And it's really exciting to see them develop and, and carry that out. How many families or or children are in the uh, most program now? Do you have any figures on that? Yeah, so we, we have uh, more than 200,000 accounts throughout the state. And then with these matching grant programs, we have about 1,500 right now that are part of the matching grant program. And for full disclosure, I am one of those 200,000 uh, people that use the most program. I believe the uh, after my son was born, Treasurer's Wifel, you sent me a tote bag and a note saying, you should sign up for most. I was planning to do that anyways, but um, and I don't want to say that the tote bag convinced me to uh, do that. I, I don't want to give the impression that uh, material, ob bag. <laughs> material objects provided me a, a, a push to make a big financial decision, but I just wanted to <laughs> mention that for full well, disclosure. I'm glad it encouraged you. Yes. Now, one of the things I, I'll always remember is this This goes back eight years, um, a little more. Um, I was at one of your last campaign rallies before the 2008 election. Mm. I, I remember that. And it was at one of the union halls in uh, North St. Louis County. And um, you, since you've been in office, I mean, th there have been a lot of people who thought you might run for higher office. You might again. Uh, just kind of your thoughts. I mean, when you look over the eight years, are there ways that you evolved? Well, I certainly would hope that anyone in any job, uh, certainly elected office, does evolve over time. Uh, I think uh, maybe you, you have a deeper appreciation for what really matters in leadership during that time. And that should be something that, that helps you along the way and that you continue to pick up and you grow as a leader. I think certainly the value of relationships um, and the importance of relationships is certainly something that I think is even a deeper place in my life now than it was when I started. But I think some of the basic ideas that I sort of instinctively was taught and thought made sense also have been reaffirmed. I mean, doing your job well, service to others, making sure that you find a way to help others, uh, having integrity and saying what you mean, I think really matters. So, you know, I think from a leadership perspective, you should certainly be shaped by elected office and it's Certainly for me being something that when you think about where you were eight years ago and where you are now, it, it gives you a, a whole other foundation to work from. You, you announced pretty early on in the 2016 election cycle, in fact, it was 2013, I was looking up an article before this show, that you weren't going to run for governor and you didn't end up running for anything in 2016. And it's actually the first time a treasurer has decided not to run for another office immediately. In a long time. I'm not saying you're never going to run for office again. We can get to that in a minute. I'm just curious if that decision kind of made it may have made it easier to to pass some of the legislative agenda because the the legislators you were working with 
knew that you're coming at this from a purely for the office mentality and not necessarily because you want to, you know, enhance your political stock. I'm curious of how that decision kind of affected your job as treasurer, because it's a rare opportunity that somebody gets to kind of operate in one of these statewide office without kind of the the pretense of electoral politics swirling around them. It, it must have been kind of a liberating feeling in many respects. Well, I think it's liberating just to make a decision and be able to share it publicly, right? I mean, part of that is is you know why try to hide your intentions if you've come to a point with yourself and with your family where you've already made your decision, right? You know, why try to go through those motions and say, well, I might be running for this or I might be running for this office? And I think to have that sort of certainty to be able to communicate that, I think it you know, shows some sense of openness, of vulnerability, maybe of integrity that I think is helpful. I can't quantify the difference that made for our legislative accomplishments and uh, in terms of the work we've done in pension protection and some of the work we've done nationally in terms of pension transparency. Uh, But it certainly, I'm sure, only added to it. And although I, I will say, if I thought I was going to run for office again, I think we would have still been able to still continue to have good interactions with the legislature. I mean, part of it is just taking time to listen to others to have some level of empathy for what others are saying and thinking about, and frankly, to be vulnerable at some level. I mean, you can't make these relationships work if you're not willing to engage in some sensible amount of risk-taking with that individual in terms of putting yourself out there uh, you know, for you know, an opportunity to work together. Now, is there a ma- any major disappointments that you had while, while you were in office? I don't, I don't have certainly any major disappointments that I would have had while I was in office. I think, Joe, the bigger issue is I'm a person who, you know, really was moved to get into politics with the idea of making a difference. And I had a deep love of policy and uh, sort of interested in how do we, you know, move the state forward in certain areas. And I guess if there was any frustration that I would have, Joe, is that the Office of Treasurer allows you to accomplish a lot, but it certainly doesn't have the ability to be able to touch other areas that you might care deeply about, right? For instance, education. In some ways, you touch it, but you don't, you know, touch education policy at elementary and secondary level, for instance. So I think just the limitations of, you know, what an office politically and statutorily can allow you to do. But we've we've pushed those limits, I think, in many ways, and and have been rewarded for it. Now, you, at least one of your predecessors and your successor have all focused on the whole terrorism business, you know, investing or not investing in firms or groups or organizations that they say have ties to terrorism. You never really brought that up during your eight years. You never really made a big deal about that. Um, is there anything you want to say about that? I mean, without talking about them specifically, but that whole issue, because that became a big issue in, in last fall's election. Yeah, certainly. Well, I think the, the probably the right path is to give the next treasurer a chance to govern in a way that, you know, discusses those issues first and then evaluate it thereafter. But I certainly, we have an anti-terror policy uh, in our office that we adhere to, uh, that we've upheld. And, and I think making sure that we can strengthen that wherever possible is a fine idea. Do you plan to stay living in Columbia for right now? Well, we have a daughter that still has a year and a half left of high school. So we're certainly not leaving immediately, but, uh, but I might have to do some commuting for a little while. Can you say at all what you're going to be doing? You no, know, I can't say yet. I, I do have uh, plans worked out at this point, and probably will be releasing that in the next two weeks. Now, when you look at what happened in the election, and of course you weren't running, uh, any thoughts about whether or not your decision 
based on the whole Trump train business, ended up, I mean, in some ways, you're one of the few prominent Democrats left standing. Well, I mean, listen, I think that we have to be modest enough to remember that as statewide electeds, even when you're running, you really don't have complete control over the results of your election, right? So we all know that, as you mentioned, that a presidential election can have a huge impact on whether you're able to make it over the finish line. So I think going into this with some level of modesty and understanding that you can't control every variable that's in place is is really important. You know, I think from the perspective, and I certainly don't think one election can define uh, a party in this state, but I do think this party has a responsibility in particular to begin to really invest in a substantial way in human capital. And I think that means recruitment matters, people matter, and that's what makes for a successful effort long term. You have actually segued into a a clip that I wanted to play from another one of your departing uh, statewide officials. He's from another party, but he brought up a point very similar to yours about kind of the predicament Democrats are in right now. This is Lieutenant Governor Peter Kinder talking about his experience going through up and down election cycles. And we'll we'll jump off that quote after uh, it's played. Believe me, I've been on the losing. I've been on through some bad Republican years. It's tough to reconcile yourself to defeat. But if you're around this business long enough, you're going to have some good nights. You're going to have some bad nights, and they even out. We hope. But but here's the problem the Democrats in Missouri have now. Uh, they are where the Republicans were in the 40s, 50s, and 60s into the 70s. Very little to no bench. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it's hard to recruit strong candidates to go up to, let's say, the Missouri Senate and be one of eight, nine, or ten members in a 34-member body. It's similarly hard to recruit strong candidates out state to go up and be one of 46 Republicans or Democrats out of out of 163 members of the House. Now, I wanted to play that clip in particularly for, for you because you were involved in the 2006 House campaigns when the Democrats won seats for the first time in a long time. I'm curious about what you think of the lieutenant governor's statement because I have heard similar arguments that that's one of the reasons Democrats are having some issues not only statewide but also in the legislature. Well, I mean, listen, human capital matters. And it's a lot easier to find statewide officials to run for office when you have 80 members in the House, for instance, right, or 90 members. So that it becomes a much easier proposition to find and recruit statewide officials who have had some time in the House and Senate when you have a bigger bench. So I, I agree completely, actually, with the analysis that a bigger bench is – probably the most important piece of really rebuilding the party here in Missouri and in other places where it's faced some challenges. And that bigger bench comes from really just a, a deep recruitment effort and a constant attention to that effort that can't happen during a two or three month time period. I mean, this has to be an investment over years uh, to make that difference. I still really wholeheartedly believe that someone who ran in what it, what it was then a competitive district in St. Louis County that there are opportunities in suburban and exurban areas for Democrats to be able to compete uh, when we recruit good candidates. And generally, a good candidate uh, is someone who is basically defined by someone who their neighbor would look at them and say, yeah, I could imagine that person representing me in office. I would trust them to do that job. Finding those people and having a deep attention to finding those people can make a huge difference. That being said, we still have some 
you know, great candidates and great people that, like Peter said, just happen to lose elections, lost an election this time. And, you know, we have candidates that are on the ballot again soon. So I think there's, you know, important not to define too much from one election. But I certainly agree, as I said before you play the comment, human capital really matters in any organization, whether it's public or private, uh, whether it's a business or a labor organization, it certainly matters in politics. So having that strong bench is a big part of success long term. Now, since you came out of, okay, you were in the state house, but you were also a labor official, um, seeing, you know, right to work is probably going to pass the next few months. Um, you know, I mean, so it's challenging times, not just for the Democrats, but for labor. Just looking at it broadly, um, do you have any sort of analysis on sort of either what happened or what what the party needs to party and labor separately, but they're on the same page somewhat uh, need to do going forward? Well, I, I think armchair quarterbacking isn't that helpful, but I mean, elections have consequences, Joe. And, uh, you know, this election clearly has consequences for policymaking here in the state. And that's part of the election process. And that's why organizations that feel passionately have to dig in and, and be successful in, in terms of the electoral process. You know, organizations are constantly going to have to remake themselves. And if right to work passes, for instance, you know, you would assume that unions are going to have to remake their own organizations internally, too, in terms of how they serve members, how they conduct business. And obviously, it, it puts more pressure on them. I think it's bad policy overall in the state to move that forward. But at the same time, uh, the reality that it's facing, I think the better best emphasis now at this point is going to be on, you know, how do you become relevant to create an economy long term that's uh, good for all families in the state. Uh, another thing that came to mind during this election cycle was just from a broader standpoint, the importance of having a strong down ballot statewide ticket, because when you ran in 2008 and 2012, you ran with a, a Democratic down ballot ticket. When I say down ballot ticket, I mean Lieutenant Governor, Treasurer, Secretary of State, Attorney General, and Treasurer. That all did very well. Even the Lieutenant Governor candidates both times that lost to Lieutenant Governor Kinder were, were strong. And this time around, as I'm sure that you saw, the Republicans beat all the Democratic candidates by more than 10 percentage points. Now, without getting into individual races, I wanted you to just maybe provide an observation about whether it is important in the future for Democrats to make sure they field strong, well-supported candidates in some of these races as a way of helping governor, U.S. senator, presidential candidates. Because it seems like, from my observation, even though it doesn't get a lot of attention, it seems like that's important not only from a political standpoint, but also making sure that the party is able to provide its ideas in some of these important down-ballot office that effectuate policy. So what's your take on that? Well, I mean, I think, you know, the idea that the party is going to save a down-ballot candidate, I think, to some extent, you have to have responsibility for yourself to, to win these elections. So I I guess I tend to look at the numbers and I say, well, Mitt Romney won Missouri by, what, about 11 points in 212? Yes. And that still allowed Clint Swifel to uh, win by, what, three points? Uh, mm -hmm. over over his opposition. So when you start to get to a 19-point gap in the presidential race, I mean, one would argue that there is nothing that anyone could do uh, to ensure that those candidates are as competitive as they need to be. So that's sort of one piece. I would say the second piece is, and it gets back to the idea of a bench, I mean, remember what the 208 cycle looked like 
we had vibrant primaries because we had almost too many candidates in some of our races, right? Including yours. Treasurer, we had four candidates. We had three in attorney general. By the way, all three of them were had shown exceptional, strong leadership skills at different levels, right? Well, there were four candidates, yep, but we don't have to get into that. <laughs> but continue. So, but so we we had this, and I worked with all of them, and we had this, you know, depth that was very, very impressive, and candidates who had developed a history of relationship building around the state, fundraising around the state, candidates that I would describe as sort of down the middle on policy in general, and and respected by both sides. You know, those things do matter, and they do help candidates become more competitive. Now, when you look at, I know the Democrats um, have been weak in rural Missouri now for roughly, well, it's been gradual over the last 15 years, but it's gotten really bad, let's say the last five, right. five or six. Um, and even though some of the candidates, without getting into indiv- individuals, worked very hard campaigning a lot in rural Missouri, including Chris Coster, who ran for governor, um, it didn't seem to make any difference. I mean, you know, I mean, Everybody's still lost, and I mean, Coster lost by five. Um, when you look at the whole rural-urban divide in Missouri, and in some ways, it's indicative of what you see nationally. I'm just interested in your general take on what Democrats. I mean, that's how Hillary lost the White House. How um, the party needs to, or what it should do to try to sell itself to uh, rural working class voters. Sure. Well, I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't want to let this one cycle define, I think, the view of the Democratic Party in rural uh, places around the country for the long term, because I don't think it's representative. I don't think our candidates on either side this time were representative of anything close to a normal election. I mean, when you have two candidates that had likability scores that were as low as they were, I think it just creates a, a really an unusual political environment. So I, I think it's important not to take too much. I think you know, if you talked about the attorney general's uh, inability to win rural Missouri, well, I mean, we had a president-elect won by 19 points around the state, but in some rural areas was winning by 71, 73 percent. Right. So, you know, those numbers become very difficult to overcome. You know, a focus for the party going forward should be an all-state focus. I think that we should be able to, uh, long-term, to be able to move forward with the idea that we're going to compete in all areas of the state. I don't think you should just sort of segment out parts of the state. I mean, when I was running the House Campaign Committee in 2006, we picked up three seats in the boot heel, for instance, right? So mm-hmm. that wasn't that long ago. Those, by the way, all of them were exceptional candidates. They were really good candidates at the time. Uh, nobody really came close to them. So if you find exceptional candidates, they can win races. The larger question that you're, I think, asking, though, which is reasonable, which is, are there some places where maybe the Democratic brand nationally has hurt so bad that we're not going to compete in the near term? And I think that's possible. I think that there are enough places, though, to compete in suburban and exurban areas that there's room there to be able to grow quite a bit. I wanted you to take a few minutes to provide any advice you have for Treasurer-elect Eric Schmidt, because um, I'm sure that you have gotten to know him over the years because I think his eight years in the Senate coincided with your eight years as treasurer. What kind of advice do you have to him as he goes into this very important office that has a lot of important aspects to make the the state run? Well, I certainly remember going through the transition process myself, Jason, and you essentially over two months get a lot of advice 
Uh, and it's hard to have the sort of bandwidth you need to take all that advice in. So I've always been cautious. And Eric and I sat down together for an hour and a half, and we've talked another time and had some good conversations about things that I care about and things I'd like to see continued on. And, and also we just you know had quiet conversations about the staff, et cetera. You know, I think keeping it simple is important. So you have, if, if you have integrity, if you believe in service to others, and you believe in actually knowing this job and doing it well, things tend to work out. You can get the politics right as you go along. And I think focusing on making sure that you've developed a team, first of all, that you trust deeply and that is really always thinking about putting citizens' interest first and finding ways to, to help grow the capabilities of the office is really important. I think the second piece is making sure that you are willing to listen to others, and that means engaging with the legislature in a way that build some relationships early on so that you can move agenda forward as time goes on. I mean, those would be the two biggest things. But I really think, again, if you believe in integrity, service to others, and you are doing your job with excellence, a lot of this is going to get worked out. Now, are there any things that you will be taking away from your time as treasurer that will either have an influence, either just in your head or otherwise, as you move forward? Well, you know, I always... uh, think about, I think, the overall responsibility of leadership in society and in communities, I think, is something that strikes me as vitally important. Um, When I think about my early years in the House, you know, I didn't really realize or understand exactly what leadership meant and really to how to fill those vacuums in terms of being able to get things done. There is nobody in society that is, um, you, you shouldn't ask or wait for permission, if you will. I think, you know, we need leaders and communities in the state to stand up and be ready to lead without asking for permission and to work on issues that matter. You know, for me personally, I think there are, you know, probably is more of a laser light focus on two or three issues that I think really do matter for the health of the state long term. Such as? Well, I think, first of all, our fiscal integrity getting that right, keeping it right. I've worked on that issue with our state's pension fund to try to make it a more healthy, sustainable plan for the long term. I think making sure that we honor the fiscal history in the state, which is generally doing the right thing and making promises that we can keep. I think the second piece is infrastructure long term in the state really does matter. Highways, roads, but also public transportation. I think investments in that space Uh, are an opportunity for Missouri to become a more dynamic state that attracts population, which is vitally, vitally important if we're serious about growing the economy is attracting more residents to the state. And the third piece is how do you really figure out a way to, in a bipartisan way to uh, make our education system more dynamic, starting at the elementary and secondary level? How do you create a better environment for teachers to grow and achieve excellence Um, but also to ensure that you have a system that is really responsive to the external world in terms of what else is happening in the economy, that it's not operating in a vacuum. Uh, And of course, funding is part of that, but part of that is sort of the processes that are in place, the rules that are in place uh, to make that system better. I would be remiss without asking you kind of about your time on the Missouri Housing Development Commission, which is always kind of a hot button topic among policy wonks, because that is the entity that approves uh, low interest housing tax credits, which has been kind of a reoccurring discussion in the legislature. And it's gonna maybe become another discussion once Governor-elect Eric Greitens is sworn in. As somebody who kind of dealt with that commission pretty intimately, I think you were actually the chairman of that commission for a few years. Well, what, what was your kind of feeling about being on that commission and where do you see the future of the low income tax credit 
going based on what you've seen over the last eight years? Well, first of all, I took over as chair of that commission. And, and if you remember, my first initiative was to put in place an ethics policy that began to separate uh, and, and create a situation, really eliminate a situation where we had developers that were doing private business deals with board members. And we did that and did that immediately and actually developed some collaboration where we got that passed unanimously. The thing that I'm most proud of with MHDC is the work that we've done with special needs. So we uh, toured a number of uh, places around the state that were helping veterans, uh, St. Patrick Center that helps uh, homeless population, and really began to identify that often we might have a physical place to summon someone, but not the supportive services. And then sometimes you have the supportive services in place, but you don't have a physical safe place to, to help someone. We began a process that now has provided uh, a safe place to call home for about 1,500 different, uh, different uh, individuals, and actually many more than that, that have worked through the system. And the idea would be is to merge housing with uh, supportive services. So you have safe housing, but you also have psychiatric care, rehabilitation therapy for veterans. Uh, you have job counseling and job training services. So you do this in a holistic way. And now we've done projects that range from a, a domestic violence shelter that help women and children gain independence and obviously provide safety first uh, to facilities that we have in St. Louis that are working with veterans on a day-to-day -day basis. That's the thing I'm most proud of with MHDC because it really, to me, answers the question of what should you be doing with a limited use of tax dollars. And in this case, I think it's putting that money toward the most vulnerable populations that are the most at risk. Now, for our last question, I'm looking at your Wikipedia page right now, and I am shocked to see that you are only 43 years old. Um, you were one of the youngest treasurers, I think, ever elected. Um, you know, most people start their political career at 43, not necessarily leaving office during that time. Um, do you ever see yourself running for office again? And or is, or is, is the elective bug pretty much over and you're ready to move on to post-political life, so to speak? Well, certainly in the in the short term, I'm of the feeling that I can still do good in society, still have that component of service to others in other ways other than elected office. And I think of my wife, Janice, she's on three different boards in mid-Missouri where she's helping others in some way. So that sort of service component is really important to me in my next career and the ability to be able to have at least the ability in my own time to be able to do those sorts of things to make a difference in the community in which I'm living is really, really important. And to be able to achieve excellence in what I do next. I'm not someone who wants to move into another statewide office for four years just waiting for that next opportunity to run for another office. I'm not someone who wants to go find a place to land in the private sector for two years and then go run for office again. I want to dig in and achieve excellence where I'm going to be next. That's important to me, uh, important to my family. And uh, so in the short term and midterm, I see the private sector as the place I'll be for a while. Well, as um, well, just speaking for myself, having known you since I was a Capitol reporter, I really appreciate your ability to, to work with reporters like us. You've been a stand-up guy for many years. And I wish you the best in whatever you plan to do next. So thank you again for for the, your many years of, of, of good relationships with us. Well, Jason and Joe, I'm going to miss our conversations. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you, you have a very – it's interesting. You're one of those public officials who's leaving office probably with a higher reputation than when you started. And it doesn't it, – it's sort of like um, – uh, 
Tim Kaine, the, who's the U.S. senator from Virginia, where a lot of people in both parties had nice things to say about him, and that's true for you as well. Is there anything that you, a, a parting suggestion on how to be such a popular bipartisan figure as you go off into the sunset, at least for the short term? Well, I mean, I think certainly the issues that we've already talked about, I mean, you have integrity, you treat people with respect, uh, you listen to others and actually make yourself vulnerable once in a while, because I think that's important to develop and build trust. Ultimately, this is a business based on some level of trust, even though it doesn't feel like it after an election cycle like this. That's what this is based on. But I'll say, I mean, the second piece, you said advice. I mean, you got to have high quality, high integrity individuals around you. And I will say that my staff through the years, whether they're the staff that came in with me and as, as state treasurer in, in, in a campaign in 2008 and nine, or the staff that is essentially you know, closing up now and transitioning to uh, Senator Schmidt, I have had excellent people from day one around me. And I think if you have quality people in place who can set aside egos and work together, there's a lot of potential in these offices to get a lot done. Well, thank you again for using your last full weekday to talk with us. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at... Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And... Is there a Twitter account that people should follow you as you you navigate the private sector? I still do have my uh, personal Twitter account that is up. And, you know, I'm 43 and I'm going to come off as a Luddite. I actually don't know what the handle is, but I think it's at Clint Zweifel. It is at Clint Zweifel. It's not very complicated, like at Clint Zweifel 36592. And it will not say that that I'm treasurer here at uh, Monday at noon. We appreciate your time. And until next time, so long. Thanks. Thanks.